Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers. And most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Gospel Tangents is supported by users like you. Please support us at gospeltangents.com or on Patreon. Welcome to Gospel Tangents, the best source for Mormon history, science, and theology, and first daily Mormon history podcast. I'm Rick Bennett. I'm excited to continue to talk about the seven Gospels of the Book of Mormon. This time we're going to talk about the Gospel of Abinadi and the Gospel of Samuel the Lamanite. What do they have to offer? I feel like we've given a little bit of short shrift to the Gospel of Abinadi. Um, uh, I mean, yeah. we kind of went from Benjamin to Abinadi, and, but we yeah. didn't really introduce Abinadi. Yeah. Can you give us an introduction to the Gospel of Abinadi? Yeah, yeah. So um, the, the Gospel of Abinadi, again, is um, in Mosiah 15, uh, and it's and it's uh, Abinadi, and, and extremely, j- just as, you know, um, Benjamin presents his gospel in this very iconic, dramatic scene, um, in the same way Abinadi presents his gospel chained as a prophet and chained. In a lot of ways, um, Abinadi is an Old Testament prophet. He's like a prophet straight out of central casting from the Old Testament. He's an outsider. He's a gadfly. Um, he testifies um, and harangues the, the rich and the powerful on behalf of the poor um, and the suffering. So he, in, in so many ways, he's, he, Adam calls him a prophet's prophet. Uh, and, and here he stands speaking truth to power um, before, King, um, before King Noah, chained and bound, and as we know, very shortly headed to his death. Um, and not surprisingly, um, then the gospel that he presents, again, as an interpretation of Isaiah, emphasizes the, the gentleness and the meekness of the Savior. Abinadi really focuses on the way in which Christ willingly gave himself up um, to his death. It talks about how he was silent and passive on, um, in the face of those who would kill him. And of course, we see in a beautiful way um, how that is played out in Abinadi's life um, just a couple of chapters later as he himself too goes to his death as a type of Christ. Um, as I said before, the Book of Mormon is teaching us 
um, reiterating what we already see in the Sermon on the Mount, which is that the power of God is a power that returns love, gentleness, and meekness in the face of coercion and violence. And that's something, that's a theme that we see repeated over and over in each of the seven Gospels in the Book of Mormon. Well, very good. I'm trying to remember what else. So we've gone through Mary, Benjamin, mm-hmm. Abinadi. Abinadi. We've talked pretty good about Alma and Alma 7, Alma. the model of atonement there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, is Abish next? Yeah, yeah. Alma 19. Now, uh-huh. this is this is the one that, um, there's the fewest verses in the Book of Mormon about Abish, right? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so you had to do some digging on this one. We did. We did. Um, you know, I, I'm a little bit of a stickler for a pattern. So so I can say there is a, a sort of, if we're going to think about the gospel as a kind of literary genre in the Book of Mormon, um, we have the basics there. Not in the mouth of Abish, but in the mouth of Lamoni, who when he awakens from his um, kind of spiritual coma that he's been in, where he's been tutored in in, um, in the presence of God, um, he, he testifies and says, I have seen my Redeemer, that he will uh, come forth born of a woman and will suffer for his people and will redeem them from their sins. So we have, that's the bare necessity right there. The birth, the death, and the redemptive suffering of Christ. Those, is that how we define a gospel, basically? Yeah. Those three things? The, yeah. The, well, that, that's how we are. And and I want to say, this isn't um, a rigorous like form work yeah. of form criticism. We throw out Mark because he doesn't have the birth, right? Yeah, that's right. And, <laughs> and, and what the Book of Mormon is doing is quite distinct from the New Testament. So I certainly wouldn't want to put this in conversation with the extensive kind of form-critical scholarship on the genre of gospel in the New Testament. But we're borrowing the word because I think it's um, evocative and apt, but the Book of Mormon kind of has its own thing going on. Um, so so Lamoni does speak kind of a gospel um, uh, of Christ, but what we really focus focus on is Abish and the way that she lives the gospel of Christ. So um, it, what what Adam does in his letter is think about the ways in which Abish is a kind of case study in gospel minimalism. Okay. Abish had had a vision that converted her to Christ, but she hadn't had any ordinances. She didn't have a church. She didn't have any kind of formal liturgy or scripture. All of the things that we associate with our Christian formation and our Christian discipleship, she didn't have. She simply didn't have. So Adam as Adam asks, what is the bare minimum that we need to be transformed in Christ, to find a life in Christ? And he looks at Abish as a kind of inspiring example that we can do with a lot less than we, than we might think that we need. Um, I look at Abish in a different way, and I sort of suggest that we should see her as kind of putting the gospel in action. So uh, throughout Alma 19, there, you know, of course, everybody remembers that that, that people keep on falling down and, and swooning in the spirit, right? They're overcome with the spirit and they fall down as if dead. Um, and so I talk about that as um, this kind of type type scene that harkens back to so many moments in the gospel of Christ's baptism, of course, of his healing of the dead, or sorry, healing of the sick and raising of the dead in Lazarus. Um, The Lazarus resonance is very, very strong. And of course, finally, of Christ's own death and resurrection. And I'm realizing, you know, 
I'm getting more non-LDS people here, and they might not know who Abish is, and so I probably should not be doing the inside baseball because, of course, <laughs> well, you and I know. Yeah. Uh, can you, for those non-members that might not be familiar yeah. with the with the story of Abish, can you give us a brief yeah. uh, background on that story first? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She, she's wonderful, and I wish we knew more about her. Um, but so, so Abish is a maid servant. She seems to be a servant to the queen in the court of King Lamoni. So Lamoni is um, a Lamanite king, and the Nephite Christian missionary Ammon, in a very famous passage, comes to preach the gospel to Lamoni. And there's the famous scene that everybody knows where he presents himself as a servant, right? So he first offers to serve the king um, before preaching to him, and and, um, and he cuts off He's the arms. He's a service missionary. He's a service missionary. <laughs> well, this is extremely, this is extremely important thematically, as we'll see. So Ammon comes and he wins the, the king's trust through um, through being his servant and, and preaches his, the gospel to him. And, and the king is converted and falls into um, this, this state of um, a, a coma-like um, spiritual revelation where he's being taught in the presence of God. And people and, wonder if he's dead. Yeah, exactly. His, his, uh, everybody thinks that he's dead. Um, but his queen, his wife, the Lamanite queen, um, doesn't, doesn't believe that, that he's dead, believes that he is still alive and, and comes to Ammon. And, um, and so sure enough, Lamoni then, um, comes to and awakes and testifies. But well, it's then, because Abish touches his hand, right? No, that's the, with the queen. That's oh, with that's the queen. with the queen. Okay, so, the, so, so the queen is there with the king as he arises, he testifies. But then his the, the king's testimony sets off this kind of, uh, almost like um, a contagion, right? Or this, this chain reaction where everybody in the court is being touched by the spirit and the way it's manifesting for them is in these spiritual swoonings. Well, everybody else who's looking on is really confused and actually starts to get terrified. And I would be too. Like, what is happening? Is there some kind of black magic going on People are falling down dead. People are falling down dead. The only one who really knows what's happening is Abish because in this very mysterious way where we only have this one evocative phrase where we're told that she was converted to Christ by a vision of her father, um, she knows what's happening. And so she sees everybody falling down and she actually sees this as an opportunity to testify of Christ. So, so she runs out to um, gather the townspeople to come in to the king's throne room and show them the, the spirit at work on, on the king and queen in their court. Um, so she runs in and draws people in. Um, she, in some ways, you know, I, I, I've been, this isn't a part of my chapter, but I've been thinking about this recently. You know, the the meaning of the word church or ecclesia is a calling out, a calling out. Ex or ek is an out, and ecclesia is to call out. So a church is when we're called out of ourselves into a communal body, right? And so in a way, we see Abish founding the Lamanite church by calling the people out of their homes to come and see what she is seeing. Unfortunately, when they get there, they they don't understand what's happening and they, they actually think something nefarious is at work. So there starts to be great conflict and confusion um, and violence even. Um, but the, and the queen herself has been has been on the on the ground, you know, slain in the spirit. And so not knowing what else to do, Abish in tears, 
kneels down beside the queen, touches her hand, and that seems to call forth the queen, and she rises, and then she herself testifies ecstatically of what she has experienced, um, and 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 that is sort of able to calm the calm the pandemonium, um, and that then this we we see in this chapter the founding story of. Lamanite Christianity, which as we see in the rest of the book of Alma and especially in the book of Helaman is very soon to eclipse Nephite Christianity as the bearers of the truth. The, the Nephite church is already in decline and very, very quickly goes into steep decline, whereas the Lamanite uh, Christian church just grows and grows and grows um, until the point where in Helaman 14, we actually have a Lamanite missionary who has come to testify to the, to the Nephites. So all throughout Alma 19, this theme of reversal, right? Where the low becomes high, the high becomes low. The first becomes last, the last becomes first. We see this played out in so many ways. Um, in particular, as the maidservant Abish assumes the, becomes a type of Christ and becomes the most important figure um, in this story. And she herself is the one who raises the queen from the ground. So quite literally, we see the low become high and the high become low. And then this theme of reversal, of course, will continue as we see the Lamanites and the ne Lamanites and Nephites writ large changing places. Okay. And so that sounds like a good segue right into uh, the gospel of uh, Samuel, yeah. the Lamanite. Yeah, Samuel the Lamanite. Again. And maybe we should tell people who not, haven't read the Book of Mormon, who's Samuel the Lamanite? Yeah. <laughs> Before we jump into his gospel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so he, like Abish, is very mysterious. All these Lamanite characters, we just don't know very much about them. And that's because, because it's the record of the Nephites, not the Lamanites. Exactly. <laughs> well, narratologically, that is exactly the case, right? We have here in the Book of Mormon... Um, the, the the historiography of a kind of Nephite scribal school, they simply don't have access to very many Nephite records. And so we just don't know that much about, about these characters. We don't really know where Samuel comes from, how he's learned the gospel, how he was called. All of that remains mysterious. And of course, after his iconic um, sermon, he disappears from the record as well, except for, well, I get to that in a minute. So um, he he appears to preach to the Nephites. Um, they, so this reversal again, this where the reversal. Nephites were teaching them, now the Lamanites yes. are coming to teach the Nephites. Yeah, Nephite, the Nephite church has declined to such an extent that um, it's now incumbent on the Lamanites to come and preach the true gospel and call the Nephites to repentance because things are getting very, very dire. So in so he's, he's expelled from Zarahemla, um, but the Lord, sort of like Jonah, is like, you have to deliver your message. Find some way to make it work. So he mounts the wall and he preaches to the, to the Nephites from the wall of Zarahemla. Um, and, and at the end, you know, he's shot at and they're, they're throwing stones and arrows to, um, to, to knock him off the wall. But from the wall, he delivers this iconic prophecy. A lot of Latter-day Saints remember it best because... Um, he, Samuel is the one who who prophesies about the three days of light, and the and the and the night of darkness that will mark the birth and the death of the Savior, respectively. So those are beloved passages, and in fact, this time of year around Christmas time, we often will read um, that as part of our Christmas observance. Um, but the reality is that Samuel's message is. <laughs> 
very dark, very, very dark. The Nephites are in a bad, bad situation, in a bad place. And he has come with two distinct prophecies for them. One is in the near term, right? And that is that um, Christ will be coming relatively soon. Um, and, uh, and, the, and then, so he prophesies of Christ's birth and also of Christ's death and of the uh, great ca catastrophic upheavals that will accompany uh, in the new world that will manifest the death of Christ. Then he has another time frame where he's prophesying about the ultimate demise of the Nephite people several centuries in the future. Um, and he talks about that as a sword hanging over your head. So he kind of has these two joint prophecies. There's two things up in heaven that are hanging over your head, Nephites. One is the Savior. He's poised, ready to come down. The other is a sword, poised and ready to fall on you. So once I started thinking about it in that way, I started to see how these two prophecies are actually very similar, right? They, they have the same structure. There's something in heaven that's ready to come down. And I started to wonder whether maybe in the end, they are the same prophecy. Maybe God's message to all people at all times is always a variation on the same message, which is that Christ is there. He's waiting. He wants to come to you. I'm going to send him to you. Will you receive him? I think that's always the prophecy. I think that's always the message that God has for us. But we hear that message in very different ways. If we are um, open to God and in loving relation with God, then that message to us is the best news. It's the good news of the gospel, that Christ is coming and we welcome him into our hearts and we experience God's relation to us as one of love. But if we are in the grips of sin, then God's love starts to feel oppressive. It can start to feel more than oppressive. It can start to feel threatening. I've experienced something like this where I know that I'm not in right relation to somebody, right? There's something wrong in our relationship and it's my fault. And I need to rectify it, but I don't want to. Yet if that person continues to relate to me with love, with unyielding love, I start to condemn myself, right? <laughs> in some ways, it feels better if they treat you badly because then you're justified in your enmity, right? But when they respond to you with love, even in your wrongdoing, it can, start, it can be hard to take. And it doesn't always feel good. And I think the same is true of our relation to God. When God continues to respond to us with love, even when we are in wrong relation to him, it can start to feel actually like a condemnation. And so I started to think maybe it's actually one prophecy. The sword and Christ are one and the same. But whether we look to that prophecy and receive it from a position of love or a position of sin, it looks to us like a sword ready to, to fall on us and destroy us. And what was so interesting is that when, when I started carrying out this hypothesis and digging into you know, um, Samuel's words to see whether it was the case, um, what I found actually, it makes sense because ultimately the destruction, 
that the Nephites experience comes at their own hand. One of the worst moments in the whole Book of Mormon, one of the darkest, most violent and horrific moments is when Samuel is describing what's going to happen to the Nephite women at their ultimate destruction at the, at the hands of the Lamanites in several centuries. And he describes this horrible moment where pregnant Nephite mothers will be trampled in the mud, right? And will, they, they and, their, and their children will be, will be destroyed in this sort of moment of horrific violence. Um, that's been always hard for me to read. And in, and in fact, for a long time, I really didn't even like to read the Book of Helaman because it is so violent. Um, I just didn't even like to go there. But when I had the courage to really go there and look at that, what I saw is that really that punishment, did that come from God? No, it came from themselves in their own panic, in their own shame and in their own fear. They destroyed themselves. So it was never a sword that God was going to drop on the Nephites from on high and punish them retributively for their sin. It was that they were going to destroy themselves in their sin. Very interesting. Yeah. You know, when I think of Helaman, we always think of the 2,000 stripling warriors, but that's not a gospel, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Um, is there anything else to add before we move on to... Uh, brother of Jared? Mm. Yeah, I'll say that, you know, in Adam's letter, he looks at kind of the the meaning of resurrection. Um, and because, you know, uh, Samuel's gospel is one where um, the soteriology or the theology of salvation is especially developed um, around and cocooning the gospel, the narrative gospel of Christ's life. Um, and so there, um, Adam talks about what it might mean to be Resurrection as a coming into the presence of God um, and as something that's kind of always available to us now and already rather than something that we have to put off and wait for in the future. So it's he has a very beautiful reading of, of that mm. chapter as well. We'll have to get Adam on. I feel like we're only yeah. getting half the book. I know. It's true. You are. You are. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Rosalind Welch, author of Seven Gospels of the Book of Mormon. In our final conversation, we're going to talk about the gospel of the brother of Jared and why she prefers reading to podcasts. Of course, a work of, of devotional theology like this can never replace scripture. Um, nothing should ever replace scripture, including a podcast. <laughs> I, I love the proliferation of podcasts around Latter-day Saint scripture reading that we've seen since Come Follow Me um, happened. And I think but it's that great. means don't stop listening. Yeah. <laughs> but I do sometimes wonder whether for some people listening to a podcast about the scripture assignment has taken the place of actually reading the scriptures themselves. Thanks for listening, and I hope you to continue to enjoy Gospel Tangents. Consider becoming a Patreon or go to gospeltangents.com shop, and you can get a cool tie, a hat, or even a nice mug. You can also get a sweatshirt, so check it out at gospeltangents.com shop. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.